So this is, uh, this is a first for me. Um, and I'm, uh, even if it's a one-off, as I was referred to, um, I'm uh, super thankful for the, the opportunity. It's just really a privilege to be able to do this. Um, in, the, in the days uh, leading up to this morning, I was thinking about um, the privilege that this is and uh, reminded myself of what a privilege we all have um, each and every Sunday when we gather together. Um, I was reminded of the fact that uh, the number of people in the world uh, who enjoy what we enjoy each and every Sunday, uh, the freedom we have, the faithful teaching we receive at this church, the body life, the rich body life that we enjoy, the number of people in the world that uh, enjoy that each and every Sunday uh, are number very, very few people. And so I was just reminded uh, and convicted of my need to be more thankful about that, but reminded of how privileged we all are uh, each, each Sunday. So anyway, I'm going to dive in. Um, I am the... Uh, I serve two masters uh, this morning, and one is the clock, uh, and so I want to be cognizant of the clock and make sure I don't bleed into uh, my senior pastor's uh, sermon. So I'm going to jump right in. Um, I want to teach this morning on thankfulness, and uh, my text will be from the first chapter of Philippians. Uh, but before you turn to Philippians, I want you to turn to uh, the book of Acts and chapter 16 in the book of Acts. In uh, chapter 16 of Acts, uh, we read about really God uh, beginning to uh, build his church in the city of Philippi. And uh, we learn about uh, two people that most of you are likely familiar with already. We uh, learn about a woman named Lydia as well as a man that we sometimes just refer to as the Philippian jailer. Um, but these are people and their families that as we study our text in Philippians today, we'll see that Paul had this heart uh, for these individuals as well as the entire Philippian church. He had a deep affection for them. And so I thought it would be helpful if we started in Acts 16 and just refreshed our memory a little bit about who these people were and um, how they became uh, believers and members of the church at Philippi. So uh, you may recall that the Holy Spirit uh, providentially led Paul and Silas to Philippi, and uh, one of the first people they encountered was this woman, Lydia. I'm going to read a few verses from that chapter, beginning with verse 13. It says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were thinking that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, uh, 
come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. You then may recall that Paul and Silas were arrested, they were beaten, uh, and they were put in, in jail while they were in Philippi. And their time in jail, of course, was that uh, well-known account when there was an earthquake that uh, set them free, and it was their occasion to have this unique and special interaction with the jailer there in Philippi. And so I'll read that, just a little bit about that account, beginning in verse 29. There we read, And the jailer asked for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of God to him and with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house. He set food before them and was overjoyed since he had become a believer in God together with his whole household. And so we're introduced here really to what we would understand to be the first two families uh, who became believers in Philippi and members of the Philippian church. And so I want us to remember um, both of these individuals uh, and their families. They were families who would have ministered together with Paul while he was in Philippi. Uh, They were members of a church that after he left Philippi, uh, Paul still had a deep affection and love for. And we'll see that now as we turn to Philippians chapter 1. If you can turn there with me, um, I'll read our text for this morning first, and then we'll ask uh, God for his help on our time together before we uh, study these words um, and the truth that God has for us this morning in detail. Uh, So in Philippians chapter 1, our text this morning will be, start with verse 3, it'll be verses 3 through 8. Paul writes these words to these people that he loves dearly in Philippi. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So pray with me and then we'll start our study. Father, it is um, good to gather together as a church family and we are thankful, Father, for uh, the freedom that we have to study your word together this morning. Uh, We come humbly to you in this moment, Father, knowing that we need your help 
And so we pray, Father, for the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, uh, that the Spirit, Father, would uh, help us to understand the truth of your word this morning and apply it in a unique and special way to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, Paul, as you know, was the author of this letter to the Philippians. Um, And I want to start there this morning and uh, talk a little bit about Paul. Uh, Rick obviously did this several months ago. He devoted an entire sermon to the person of Paul. I don't intend to replicate that again this morning, uh, but I do think recalling uh, Paul and uh, Paul's character will be helpful for us as we begin our study of this text. As most of you know, Paul's post-conversion life was a life characterized by hardship. Uh, He knew much adversity, much trial, much persecution. Paul's character was maligned by his adversaries at almost every turn. We know that he was beaten on several occasions. He was stoned more than once. He was shipwrecked. Paul traveled thousands of miles, most of that travel by foot, uh, for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this about his ministry travels. He said, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In addition to all of that, we know that Paul was imprisoned for his faith on multiple occasions. In fact, the final eight years of Paul's life were predominantly spent as a prisoner under arrest. Uh, You might recall the final years of Paul's life began with his arrest in Jerusalem. While under arrest, he was sent to Caesarea. He was in prison in Caesarea for about two years while he awaited trial. Um, He never was tried in Caesarea. He appealed his case to Caesar, and he was sent to Rome. Uh, Held under house arrest in Rome is where we find Paul this morning as he writes this letter to the Philippians. He'd likely been under arrest for about four to five years at this point. And so as he begins to write this letter to the Philippians, we can imagine Paul with a parchment or perhaps a scribe at one hand, but at the other hand, a chain and a Roman soldier. He would be chained under house arrest to that Roman soldier 24 hours a day. Uh, He had a level of freedom under house arrest But by and large, his freedom had been taken away from him. And so, unlike you and me this morning, Paul, under house arrest, was unable to gather regularly with his church family, unable to enjoy communion with them, unable to sing hymns with his church family, unable to enjoy regular fellowship with his church family. As I mentioned, he'd survived a shipwreck. He'd survived multiple beatings and stonings. 
as he wrote that letter, he was likely tired to the bone. His feet would have been sore, his legs would have ached, his scar would have been, his back would have been scarred from the beatings. We know from the benefit of hindsight that Paul was eventually set free from his house arrest in Rome, only to be imprisoned again later. But Paul, as he penned this letter, had an uncertain future ahead of him. He did not know that he would be released. He did not know if he would perhaps be executed. And so, as he begins this letter, he starts with his customary greeting. He introduces himself, he addresses his recipients, he offers them grace and peace. And then in verse 3, he begins the letter in earnest. And I can imagine, if I were writing the letter, I would want to find that thing that is most important that I first want to impress upon my Philippian readers. And so I suspect that that's what Paul tried to do. And he wrote these four words to begin his letter. I thank my God, he wrote. Let that sink in for a minute and marvel at those four words. Because you see, if I were writing that letter, that would not be how I would start the letter. This is an unexpected start to Paul's letter in my view. If I were writing that letter, I would want to tell the Philippians about my shipwreck. I would want to tell the Philippians about my imprisonment and the trials I faced, the freedoms that were taken away from me. That's what Jeff Brown would write, but not Paul. He ignored his circumstances and in the moment he chose to be thankful. So pause with me and marvel at those four words. I think it's appropriate for us to admire Paul the person, but mostly this morning, I want us to admire the God who changes the hearts of men. You see, Paul, by his own admission in 1 Timothy 1.13, before he knew Christ, was a blasphemer. He would have led a comfortable life he would have been well-respected by his colleagues, and yet his tongue would have only spoke blasphemy. That was his confession. And then he met Christ on the Damascus Road, and Christ gave him a new heart, and he gave him a new heart and a new tongue. And so post-conversion, Paul knew only hardship. And yet, post-conversion, his tongue no longer spoke blasphemy, but his tongue proclaimed nothing but thanksgiving. I know many of you are note-takers, and if you are taking notes this morning, I want to encourage you to write this note down. The Christian heart is a thankful heart. The Christian heart is a thankful heart. The Christian heart sings thanksgiving to God. The Christian heart is not oblivious or unaware of difficult circumstances. Paul was certainly aware of his, but the Christian heart isn't focused on circumstances. The Christian heart is clearly focused on a God who is good, who does good, and that heart gives thanks to God. 
Paul continues in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And again, to me, this is an unexpected start to the letter. If I were writing the letter, I would be asking for prayer. I would be asking the Philippians for their help. But not Paul. He didn't think of himself. He only thought of others. In these six verses that form our text this morning, Paul uses the word you, Y-O-U, eight times in six verses. This letter wasn't about me, myself, and I. Paul had his focus squarely on the Philippians. In fact, Paul always had the church in mind. As he penned this letter to the Philippians, the foremost thought that he wanted them to know was that he remembered them and that he was thankful for them. I want to also note that Paul's attitude toward the Philippians was not based on something that was unique about the Philippians themselves. They were not special or good. That's not what made Paul thankful for them. Paul was thankful for the entire church of Christ. To the church in Rome, he wrote, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. He told the Ephesians, I do not cease giving thanks for you. And the Thessalonians, he said, we give thanks to God always for you. As I thought about this, I thought for sure those rascals in Corinthians, Paul was not thankful for them. But that's not the case. To the church in Corinth, he wrote, I thank my God always concerning you. You see, Paul was consistently thankful for all things, but he was particularly thankful for the church of Christ, for the body of Christ. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. This morning, I want us to see four observations about thankfulness for the body of Christ that we can learn from Paul. The first observation is found in verses 3 and 4, and that is thankfulness should result in prayer with joy for others. Paul says, I thank my God and all all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer. You see, for Paul, thankfulness was inseparably linked to prayer. It was like breathing for Paul, where every inhale was always followed by an exhale. Whenever he remembered the believers in Philippi, inhale, he always thanked God for them and prayed for them, exhale. They were natural reactions for Paul. One always followed the other. Please also note this about prayer, Paul and his prayer life, it was never a burden for Paul to pray. I've been convicted as I've thought about this text how so often prayer to me becomes a duty. Um, It was never a duty for Paul. It was never just a part of his daily routine. He told the Philippians that intercession for them was an occasion of joy to Paul. It was something that gave him deep satisfaction. And I want that to be true of me. I want that to be true of each of you as well, for prayer is the best evidence of our love for the body of Christ. Uh, Prayer is that tool that God gives us to most impact the body of Christ, and so it should be a privilege and a joy for us to pray for one another. 
Paul now turns from a response to thankfulness and he begins to provide reasons why he is thankful for the Philippians. In verse 5, we find our second observation, and that is this. Thankfulness should result from shared participation in the gospel. Paul does not intend for Christian ministry to be done alone, or God does not intend for Christian ministry to be done alone. It's something that he intends for us to do together. And Paul was thankful for the fact that he had done Christian ministry together with the Philippians. Many of your Bibles translate a Greek word, one that you're likely familiar with, koinonia. Uh, Many of your Bibles translate that as participation. That is a fair translation, but it's not my favorite, at least not in the context that we see it in this morning. You see, to me, participation is something that's true of perhaps a member of a rotary club uh, or a runner in a half marathon. Um, Paul was seeking to convey a much deeper participation than that. Koinonia can also be translated fellowship or communion, and I like those translations in this context better. You see, Paul's thankfulness was not that the Philippians had participated with him in some church event, Uh, Paul likely was thinking of something he wrote to them later in Philippians, verse 3.10. He was likely thinking of the koinonia that he shared with the Philippians or the fellowship that he had with them in Christ's sufferings. Or perhaps 1 John 1.3, he may have been thinking of the common communion that he had with the Philippians and with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Or perhaps the koinonia described of the early church in Acts 2.42, where we know that the early church was found continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Participation in the gospel begins the moment we each believe, the moment we each become part of God's family, and that's what Paul felt with the Philippians. He was thankful for them because they were family. He was thankful for them because they worshiped the same God. He was thankful that they were indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. He was thankful that they had a common faith and a common hope and that they strove together for a common goal of making disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say that He was thankful for this fellowship from the first day until now. He was likely recalling the salvation of each individual believer in Philippi, as well as their faithful service for the church from that day of salvation until Paul's current imprisonment in Rome. As he wrote these words, I can imagine that he likely thought of Lydia and how she had opened her home for the church to meet. He had likely thought of the Philippian jailer and the day when the jailer and his entire family were baptized and how they had served Paul by providing food for him and cleaning his wounds. Ministry is something that Christians do together. I'm thankful for my care group, for men that I pray with, study God's word with, do evangelism with. 
I'm thankful for others who participate in gospel ministry with me, and Paul was as well. After looking backward at the Philippians' shared participation in the gospel, Paul now turns his eyes forward. In verse 6 is our third observation. Thankfulness should result from God's progressive sanctification in the lives of others. In verse 6, Paul says that he is thankful for the good work that he, God, had both begun in the Philippians and was perfecting in the Philippians. What exactly is this good work that Paul had in mind? It seems clear from the text that it was a good work that God had done, not that the Philippians had done. It was a good work that in Paul's mind had a definitive beginning and it had a definitive end. The good work that Paul had in mind would have included the salvation of each Philippian believer. It was a good work that ultimately began with the redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross, but more particularly, Paul was likely thinking about the good work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of each Philippian believer, enabling them to come to faith in Christ. It's clearly a work that God begins. We saw that with Lydia. We saw that Paul had shared truth with Lydia, but that God was the one who had opened Lydia's heart to respond to that truth. Paul goes on to say that the good work that God began is a good work that he is perfecting and that it will be perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. We understand that God's plan of salvation is a progressive plan. Uh, we see that in Romans 8. These are familiar verses, I'm sure, to all of you, verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8, where Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified... He also glorified. And so Paul, as he thought with thanksgiving about the Philippian believers, he thought about the work that God began, the calling of the Philippian believers. But he was thankful as well for the work that God would complete one day, the glorification of the Philippian believers. That perfection would be completed, Paul says, on the day of Christ Jesus. This day of Christ Jesus was an anchor for Paul. It was a day yet to come, and yet it was a day in which he anchored his hope, his faith, and his thanksgiving for the Philippians. What is the day of Christ Jesus? Many of you are likely familiar with the phrase, day of the Lord. Uh, it's a phrase that we find often in Scripture. The two are similar in that they both point to a day when Christ will return, the coming return of our Savior. But they differ in this way. Day of the Lord has an emphasis that is judgment. It is that day when Christ will return to judge. Here in Philippians, day of Christ Jesus has an emphasis of the day when Christ the bridegroom will return for his church. J.C. Ryle refers to this future time as the great gathering. I like that a lot. 
it will be a great gathering. It will be a great gathering because God's church will be great in number. It will be a great gathering because in that moment, there will be great rejoicing. But perhaps beyond all of that, it will be a great day because it will be that day when God's work of salvation will be complete. His church will be redeemed. His church will be glorified. His church will be made perfect. His church will be presented to Christ without spot or wrinkle. Paul was confident that this day would come and he was confident that God's work would be perfected. His confidence didn't rest in the Philippian believers. His confidence rested in the one who made the promise, in the character, in the person, in the will of God. He understood that God would not have an incomplete project. He understood that God would not partially fulfill what he promised. He understood that the work that God began in the Philippians would be a work that God would finish and that that finishing would be the perfection of his church. I have one last point on verse 6 before we move on. It is perhaps the most important point. It's the one that's impacted me the most as I've studied this text. And so if you were to leave with only one thought this morning, I would want it to be this next thought. You see, Philippians, verse, uh, Philippians 1 verse 6 is a verse that's familiar to many of us. Very familiar. Um, and I know that when I think about this verse, I typically think about it in the context of my own personal sanctification. I think about how God is doing a sanctifying work in me. But I want you to see this morning that that was not the context in which Paul wrote that wor these words. When Paul wrote Philippians 1.6, he was not thinking about Paul. He was thinking about each of the Philippian believers. And he was thinking about how God was doing a work within each of them that he had called them to faith, but that he was perfecting them. I want to read a comment from John MacArthur on Romans 8.29 because I think it captures well the vision that I believe Paul had. Um, this comment is included on the back of your handout, so you can follow along with me as I read this. But MacArthur writes this. He says, from Before time began, God chose to save believers from their sins in order that they might be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Consequently, every true believer moves without fail toward perfection and righteousness. As God makes for himself a people recreated into the likeness of his own divine son, a people who will dwell and reign with him in heaven throughout all eternity, God is redeeming for himself an eternally holy and Christ-like race to be citizens in his divine kingdom and children in his divine family. That was, I believe, the vision that Paul had when he wrote these words. I have a confession to make to you this morning. 
There are times when I am not thankful for each of you, or times when I am less thankful for you than I should be. And the reason that happens to me is that I tend to think of you in earthly ways. I think of the differences that we have, the difference of of opinion or preference that we have, or I may see you in your sin. And in those moments, I am unthankful for each of you. But that's not what we're called to in this text. I believe that Paul was fully aware that the Philippian believers were sinful. And we know that Paul was unafraid to correct, rebuke, uh, correct people's sin. And yet Paul never got stuck there. He was always able to look beyond a person's sin to the perfection that God was creating in them. You see, when Paul looked at the Philippian believers, if he were here this morning and he looked at each of you, he would not see sinners. He would see redeemed sinners who were being recreated into the image of Christ Jesus. And for that, he was thankful. Paul's thankfulness reaches a crescendo in verses 7 and 8. That's where we find our fourth and final observation, and that is that thankfulness should result from others being mutual partakers of God's grace. Paul's thankfulness for the Philippian believers literally flows from his heart in these verses. I like to think of it as a hymn of thanksgiving as he expresses his deep feelings for the Philippian believers. God knows, he says, how I have you in my heart. God knows how I long for you all. God knows that I have an affection for you that is like the affection of Christ Jesus. These weren't trite thoughts that Paul was expressing, nor were they hyperbole. These were sincere and authentic thoughts. He was under house arrest. He was unable to see the Philippian believers face to face. He was unable to embrace them. And so he struggled in this moment to find the words to adequately express how much he cared for them and how thankful he was for them. In the, in the midst of this authentic closing, Paul offers his final reason for thankfulness for these believers. He was thankful that they were partakers with him in God's grace. This would be divine grace, that kindness, goodwill that God expresses to each member of his church. Paul's not specific about the nature of the grace that he had in mind, but I think verses 7 and 8 flow contextually out of verse 6. And so I believe the grace that he had in mind is both saving grace, the saving grace that was the work that God had begun in the Philippian believers, as well as sustaining grace, that grace that would be present with them from the moment of salvation until the day of Christ Jesus. You and I each understand that we've been saved by grace through faith. It was by grace as a college student that I first believed the truth of the gospel. It was grace that appeared to Paul as a light from heaven on the Damascus Road. It was grace 
that brought him to be baptized when the scales fell from his eyes. It was grace that came to Lydia along the riverside and opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And it was grace that called the Philippian jailer to cry out, what must I do to be saved? You see, saving grace comes differently to every Christian, but every Christian is a partaker of saving grace. What is sustaining grace? I think 1 Corinthians 15.10 says it well. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. That, I believe, is sustaining grace. You see, Paul labored, we labor, and yet none of us really labor because God's grace sustains us. Paul was separated by 800 miles from his friends in Philippi, and yet he knew that they stood with him in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Distance did not impact the fact that while he labored for the gospel under house arrest, they continued to labor for the gospel in Philippi, and more than that, the grace of God labored within each of them for the gospel. They were partakers of God's grace. Paul was thankful for that. I'm going to conclude with um, a handful of applications from our text this morning. I think, for the most part, applications are self-evident. And some of the ones I share will likely be self-evident. But I'm going to close with three applications. Uh, First, I want to be asking myself, I want each of you to ask yourselves, do you have a thankful heart? Uh, We saw today that the Christian heart is a thankful heart. Um, Most of us, perhaps none of us, will ever endure hardship equivalent to what Paul endured. Uh, And yet we saw in him that he was really almost oblivious to his hardship and was thankful through it. And I think that that's a good example for us to follow. A second application would be prayer. Um, I've been convicted of my need uh, to pray more faithfully and regularly for each of you and to consider it an occasion of joy. And that would be a second potential application. Last, and I'm going to spend a minute longer on this one, but as you think about your own thankfulness for the church, I want you to ask yourself whether you are thankful for each member of the body of Christ. Uh, As I, reflecting on this text as I studied it, was honest with myself, in honesty, I had to say to myself that there are times when I am really thankful for some of you and not so thankful on other occasions for other of you right? And some of you may, if you're honest with yourself, be guilty of that as well. But that's not what our text calls us to today. Um, If you're still in Philippians 1, look at Paul's introduction in Philippians 1.1. He addresses his letter to 
all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi. There was not a saint that he excluded in the address to his letter. And it would be my understanding that there was not a saint that was excluded from Paul's thanksgiving. It wasn't as though Paul was thankful for Lydia and not so thankful for Yodia and Syntyche, two women who he will correct at the end of this letter. Paul was thankful for each one of them, and it was because he understood and had in his vision God's plan of redemption for the church. Paul understood that each saint had been called by God, that each saint was being perfected by God, and that for the glory of God, each saint would one day dwell and reign with Christ in his kingdom for all eternity, and that drove him to be thankful for each saint. I'm at 10.15. I feel pretty good about that. Um, I'm going to close this just with a word of prayer, please. Father, I I am thankful, uh, Lord, for this church body and um, thankful, Father, for each member of this body, for how you have used them to bring glory to your name, uh, for how you have used them to impact my life personally. Um, Father, I'm thankful for your plan of redemption, a glorious plan, Father, that we get to see unfold uh, before our very eyes each and every day. And I pray, Father, that you would help me and help each of us not to lose sight of that plan. Um, Help us, Father, to see it every day and help us to look forward to the day of Christ Jesus and to long for that time when Christ will return for his church. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.